This is episode number 50 with Jim Murphy, the key to beating cancer and how he's lived a fulfilled life. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you lead a high-performance life. I'm really excited about today's episode because it's with one of my dear friends, Jim Murphy. I actually rode my bike several times to my uh, radiation, and uh, it's about 13 miles each direction. 13 miles getting there was easy. After radiation, I will tell you the 13 miles took me about two and a half hours to get home. But kind of with you in the back of my head, I went home those two and a half hours with a smile on my face, just saying, you know what, how many people can go to radiation and ride their bicycle home? Jim Murphy is one of the most inspiring people I know. We first met by coincidence when our paths crossed in the bicycle industry many, many moons ago. Since then, I've looked to Jim as a mentor, a ride buddy, and most importantly, as a great friend. When he was diagnosed with cancer almost exactly five years ago, I was speechless that cancer had attacked my amazing friend. He started a blog about his experience, and I distinctly remember his impactful words saying to his readers, do not tell me I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. His tenacity and passion for life were the key to how he dealt with and beat esophageal cancer, which only affects 1% of the population. He refused to let the diagnosis dictate his future and insisted on continuing to ride his bike and ski as a ski patroller, even while undergoing chemo and radiation. He even rode his bike to the treatments. But that's not all. Jim has led an incredible life with a dynamite career. He has been the national director of sales and has also held vice president of sales roles for massive companies like Snapple, Red Bull, FRS, and Promax. And today he's doing something entirely different, which we talk about in the show. This episode is full of so much of Jim's wisdom and insight to his approach at life. He even said that if he died at age 51 of cancer, he felt like he had lived a fulfilled life. There are so many great nuggets on how to lead a life with more purpose, his approach to fighting off cancer, his philosophy to growth and success, including two key specific details on how he has found success in business and how giving back to his community brings him the most fulfillment of all. We also talk about how cycling specifically helped him in one of the most challenging times of his life and how important our attitude can be. Jim also went recently to the Olympics in South Korea, and he had some interesting stories to tell and about how sport brings us all together. Jim also counsels people who are currently fighting cancer and definitely wants to connect with you if there's anything that you would like to talk to him about. And he's given his email and it's also in the show notes, so make sure that you check it out. Before we get into this amazing and impactful episode, I want to thank our podcast sponsor, Kuat Racks. It's that time of year now where we're back out on the trails and riding our bikes or maybe on the road if you're a road biker and being able to transport your babies, your equipment, your N plus one is important to do it in a safe way. And the great thing about Kuat Racks is they are one of the most secure racks on the market and you can get roof racks, you can get hitch mount. I personally have a hitch mount rack and it's important to just keep it easy and to not make things difficult for yourself when packing your car. I know for me, I didn't have a bike rack for about 10 years, which is hard to imagine. I drove a busted out 94 Nissan Sentra that was a two door and I had taken the back seat out and put my bikes in the back. 
And I don't know why I never actually got a rack, but I finally own a bike rack and it's the most amazing thing ever. And it makes things a lot easier. And I know that my bikes aren't gonna get messed up being smashed in the back of my car. So check them out at kuatracks.com, K-U-A-T racks.com. There's also a link in the show notes. I also wanted to take a moment to say thank you to those of you who are supporting my work financially on Patreon. Patreon's a crowdfunding website to help support work of artists, creators, and more. And if you want to go support my work, it's patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney Show. And Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the Sonia Looney Show. And you can find that in the show notes, but it just really helps with the growth of the show. And I really appreciate the support. I wanted to give specific shout outs to a few people who have been on there for a while. Some of the biggest supporters on there are Billy Geshwill, Charles Sagerstrom, Kathleen Winnott, Shauna Kelly, and Kathy Judson. And of course, I really appreciate everybody else on there who has also contributed, and I want to do more to give back to you guys. So let's get back into the show. Really appreciate you guys listening and coming back and also taking a screenshot and sharing the show on social media to help it grow. It makes a huge difference. I've also seen an uptick in reviews and the reviews make a difference on iTunes and Apple Podcasts because it helps it be more visible in their search engine. So thank you in advance for leaving a review and thank you if you already have. Awesome. Let's get into this episode with Jim Murphy. I think you're going to get a lot out of it and I definitely felt really excited after we finished this episode. Jim Murphy, how's it going? Uh, Life is good. Sonia, how about yourself? Doing well. You are one of my oldest friends at this point. And not old as in old <laughs> the age, but as in a lot. I think in both. <laughs> Probably in both. But in this journey of being in the bike world, you were one of the first people I met whenever I sort of transitioned away from engineering into the bike world. I do remember that almost like it was yesterday. I know that was probably like a decade ago or more, actually probably even more than that at this point. But we were in Phoenix doing a, a ride. It was like a bicycle retailer type ride. And I don't even remember. Do you remember exactly how we met on that ride? Well, it was put on by a bicycle retailer. So they had reached out for, um, I think you and Dave Weens were both uh, supporting it as, as you know, athletes that uh, were involved in the bike industry. And of course, I was coming from a manufacturer side. And we got together that day and, and rode, uh, unbelievably, all of us being mountain bikers, we were riding road bikes around uh, Phoenix. <laughs> yeah, and I remember I learned from you that you don't like road biking very much, and fire roads, you would say, they make you itchy. So every time I ride a fire <laughs> road, I, I think about you and how it makes you itchy. <laughs> Absolutely. I break out in hives on uh, fire roads. <laughs> and at the time, who were you working for back then? That would have been right at the start of FRS. That's right. And they were sponsoring me as an athlete back then as well. Absolutely. They, they sponsored, uh, it was a, I think it was a product-only sponsorship with uh, Topi Gergon and yourself and Dave and Jeff and, and the rest of the group. Yeah. Yeah, and that was fun. Like on that ride, we got to meet all these different people at bike shops and some of the other people. And I also remember, I think it might have been on this trip that we sang karaoke. We did indeed. Well, let's say you did indeed. <laughs> but yes, I do remember that. And that was my first time ever in my entire life singing karaoke. And I picked probably the hardest song to sing. And you were there supporting, even though your ears were bleeding. <laughs> no, that was I think that was the start of your recording career, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yeah, for you guys, you guys listening, I tried to sing Lady Gaga Poker Face and it was horrendous. 
But, you know, it's good to be embarrassed in public. I think it's good for the character. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I don't know about Lady Gaga, but I enjoyed it. Awesome. And you and I just sort of got to know each other more over the years, working together through FRS and being at similar events. And I just remember when I met you, I thought, this is a really cool guy. This is a guy who just, he's always positive and upbeat. He has this like good energy about him and he brings everybody up every time they come into contact with him. So naturally I was drawn to your energy every time that we got to see each other. And I just always felt supported and just really liked you a lot. Well, thank you, Tonya. I will tell you that I think it's somewhat magnetic because you do attract similar people. And that's, I think that's the attraction to you is the fact that uh, nobody can be in such pain on the race course and still have a smile on their face like you do. So inspirational for me as well. Oh, thanks, Jim. Yeah, so you were at FRS. What, what were you doing before that for work? Before FRS was Red Bull. So I went from a hardcore energy drink, if you want to call it that. I mean, uh, that's the way it's viewed, I guess, by everybody, into a, uh, a more healthy version of energy, which was FRS. And what brought you into working in that industry to begin with? Well, I spent uh, 35 years in consumer products. So mostly, mostly beverages at the end of my career on the CPG side. I did uh, time with uh, Snapple. So we did uh, about, uh, I think about nine years with Snapple and then about five years with Red Bull and a couple years with FRS. So really enjoyed the beverage side of the business, but more functional beverages than anything else. So that was kind of fun. In these companies, you weren't just work. You were playing an executive role to take all of these brands to the next level, right? I did. All of those positions were national jobs, which was kind of interesting because it did allow me to, to uh, spend a lot of time on the road around the country. So, yeah, I helped Red Bull get to a different level. And even though they were already a very large brand, over a billion dollars in sales here in the U.S., we were able to get it to places that historically didn't have Red Bull. Snapple was so much the same, where we expanded the distribution on that brand. And then FRS, as you know, was, you know, something that we were working with our good old friend Lance Armstrong on that brand to really get it established in the cycling community. And that truly was a great brand, just unfortunately mismanaged by, uh, by the people running the company. Yeah, that would be really hard to be working really hard to grow a company and then bump up against a ceiling that you don't have any control over after you spent so much time trying to grow it. I guess it's a lot like life. You know, you get a chance to uh, you get to ex a chance to experience the good and the bad as you're building a brand. Very much like through every day in life, there's good parts and bad parts about it. But you know, you can always look back. If it wasn't for FRS, you and I would have never met. So I say that there's a lot of benefits that you pick up along the road, even if the brand was unsuccessful, which it was. It still gave me a lot of opportunities to meet a lot of different people and grow in a lot of different businesses. So. Yeah. Yeah, and I think like too often we're really focused on the end product of what's going to happen. If we put in this work, we think this will happen and then that will mean success. And like you said, it's not just that end goal that matters. It's the things that happen along the way. And it's really easy to get stuck looking into the future and getting stuck in future thinking and miss out on what you're doing on a daily basis. And I, I can personally say that that happens to me all the time because I'm so excited about all these projects. And then I just forget that, okay, I got to take it a step back and just focus on the present moment. And I think that what you just said is, is a really good example of that. Yeah. It, you know, it's so true. As you were saying that, I was kind of thinking of a, a recent experience where I rode up a, a gondola back in uh, at the Olympics in South Korea. And this, uh, this young lady was prepared to race in all of the disciplines of downhill skiing. 
And uh, on our way up to the chair, she started explaining a medical issue that she was starting to have in Korea. And I thought to myself, you know, here's, here's an athlete, world-class athlete that spent four years preparing for this basically 10 days of competition. And now all of a sudden she's got some kind of medical ailment that she was asking me about that was going to stop her from being her absolute best. And that's kind of sad to see something like that happen. Yeah, yeah. And I definitely want to talk about you doing ski patrol at the Olympics. I think that's awesome. But I, I still want to keep talking about um, your business life a little bit. So you were doing these national level roles. What were some of the barriers you had to overcome to get there? Because a lot of times people want to see growth in their career, but they it's either themselves, like they don't believe in themselves enough to get to the next level, or maybe it's something else. So what were some of the things that helped you become successful in your career? Well, I think first and foremost, the foundation that I got from my parents, which was, you know, always keep your head down and work hard. Won't say that I'm the smartest tool in the shed, but without a question, you know, there's very few people that can outwork me. So I get up there early in the morning, stay late at night, you know, basically do whatever it takes because I take a lot of pride in what I do. So that was probably the key to, to me being successful. If I look back and I do counsel a lot of young, young guys coming through the system and certainly offer my support to anybody that's uh, I'm working with a few guys right now that uh, are changing careers, my counsel to them all the time is you could probably get the job you're looking for if you simply go out and extend yourself beyond what you're comfortable with. And by that, I say what you want to do is, is walk into a company that you really want to work for, uh, target you know a company that you're going to actually enjoy working for. And then challenge them to put you in a position that you and them are uncomfortable with, but back it up. Guarantee them, you know, in my mind, I say, give me 90 days. 90 days, if I can't prove to you that I was the right choice in hiring, we both walk away from the job, no harm, no foul. Very few people are willing to stand up and make that kind of commitment based on what they know they can deliver. I just did that recently and what I'm doing today, which we can get into later, but uh, I think that to me, has, has separated me from other people, that I'm willing to step up, put my money where my mouth is. So I have got some pretty important jobs over time, just demonstrating that I, you know, if you give me the next level, I'll be successful. I will perform. And if we don't, we both walk away knowing that it was a nice shot, but it wasn't intended to be that way. And I feel that way today. What I'm doing today, I started back in November and uh, totally unrelated business after 35 years. And I sat down with the owner of the company and made the same pitch. Now, I want to try this. It's something I want to do. Give me 90 days. And if you're not comfortable after 90 days, we both part ways. Nobody's unhappy. We gave it a shot and we move on in our separate ways. And it's worked out well. So, Yeah, I think the key to that is that you're not afraid to have it not work out. And I think a lot of people are nervous. Um, they say, well, I don't actually think I have the skills or I don't actually know what's going to happen. I might say, give me 30 days and it might actually not go like I wanted it to. And I might let the company down. So how do you balance that feeling of, I'm not 100% sure, and also balance out the feeling of, well, what if it doesn't go well? Absolutely. And it may not. I mean, this may not have gone well, but I know just like you as an athlete, when you finish a race, you know you left it all out there. And some races aren't meant to win. Some races, there is somebody faster. Some businesses, there is somebody smarter, somebody better. And you just got to accept that and then move on to the next opportunity and repeat it all over again. You know, I think it's like life's on you. It's you step up and you give it the best shot you can give it. And that's all you can do. If you feel like you did everything you could and it didn't work out, you just you should smile and say, you know what? It's a good thing after 90 days we did walk away because I can't imagine doing that for three more years if it wasn't working out. So 
I feel like if you went after the job you really wanted, desire is enough to put you over the finish line. And that's kind of how I, I teach people. Don't just go get a job. Find a job that you really want and then go after it with everything you got. And most people, I think, if they have pride in what they do, they will make it successful just because that is where they want to be. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. And I love listening to lots of different entrepreneur podcasts and shows. And a common theme amongst entrepreneurs is a lot of them say, like, I didn't know how to make this work to start. I just got started and I just started taking actions and I had the faith that I would figure it out as I went along. And I think that that is a lesson that can be applied everywhere. Well, you know, you're a great example in that. I remember like it was yesterday, you and I talking about, you know, what you were going to do to build the Sonia Looney brand. I mean, I, you were at Ergon at the time and you had all these ideas on what you wanted to do. And you said, is it, you know, are these ideas crazy? And I said, you know, they're only crazy if you think they're crazy. If you think they can work, then they're not crazy. Uh, you just got to put it out there. Some things you'll have, you know, uh, average success. Some things you'll be very successful in. And you just got to understand that the things that you really excel at are probably the things that you're most passionate about. It's always worked for me. I love that. That's always been inspiring for me to watch because you're somebody that lives their life by example. Like people can stand and say all these things, but it's ultimately what their actions are that will create a ripple effect out in the world to help other people take those steps in their lives. That's a great point. I mean... My dad always said that, you know, put your money where your mouth is. If you're going to talk a big game, you better be able to step up and back it up. And uh, my dad did that. And so it was, I, it was a good example as a, as a young kid watching him and how he would, you know, do the things that he said he was going to do. He's a man of his word. I, I know I'm, uh, I'm probably very much like you. I overcommit myself all the time. But I tell you what, when I commit to something, I will show up and I will do it and I'll do my absolute best. So I do know if, if everybody was gathered around at my funeral today, that that has to be one of the things that I would hear from a lot of people that, uh, you know, when I said I was going to do something, I, I went out, I did it. I, what I got to do is just be quieter because I, <laughs> I commit to too many things. Yeah, I think that having integrity with your word is, is basically what you just said is a really powerful thing. And there's this book I love, and I've tried to reach out to this author to get him on the show, but I haven't had any success in response yet. But the book is called The Four Agreements. And one of the four agreements is be impeccable with your word. And if you say you're going to do something and you follow through, you build trust with yourself. Excellent point. Excellent point. The four agreement, huh? The four agreements. Uh, four agreements. Yeah. And he also yeah. wrote this other book called The Mastery of Love. He uses ancient Toltec philosophy in a lot of his books. So yeah, I think he's awesome. But I want to switch gears here a little bit. And I want to ask you how you got into cycling. It's always an interesting story of how everybody gets in and finds the bike. Sure. I guess, you know, my, my the earliest bike story I can remember is when I was in second grade and my mom always warned me about a big giant hill in Pennsylvania where we lived. And she said, you know, it scares me that you're on that hill, you know, riding your bicycle with the cars and the traffic. And of course, I didn't just ride the hill. I had to be the guy pedaling down the hill. <laughs> uh, and of course, I've got, a, I've got a scar on my right chin as a good example of, you know, listening to mom and not doing what you think is right, but rather what she's telling you. So I started off riding a, a BMX bike when I was probably uh, seven or eight. And I just came back across cycling when I met my wife. First bike we picked up was a tandem. I uh, decided that, you know, it was something we wanted to do together. We still have a tandem. We don't ride it very often. But uh, her and I went out and bought a mountain tandem. And we decided to ride it on the street. We just liked the idea of having the suspension. So we did a mountain tandem for several years. We went to a road tandem. And then finally I decided... It's time to start riding my own bike. 
and not just riding with my wife all the time. And of course that morphed into uh, mountain biking, which is my absolute passion, specifically single track. As you mentioned earlier, it's the fire roads just make me break out in the bad sweat, <laughs> but absolutely love it. Just love being in the mountains, love being, you know, outdoors, love being on a bike and just absolutely enjoying, you know, the scenery that's out there and just love going fast on single track. So I guess I've been riding now for, you know, religiously for almost 30 years because we'll be married 29 years next month. So about 30 years we've been that I've been really into into cycling. I love that. Like cycling, every person that rides a bike, it's made a massive impact on their lives in all these different ways. And that's why we were so passionate about telling other people about our sport. Absolutely. You know, my like local bike shop, they asked me to come in one time and, and talk a little bit about what cycling meant to me in the little get-together they had in their shop. And the one thing that, uh, you know, I, I like to reference is, you know, cycling was my rehabilitation from cancer. If it wasn't for that, I'm not sure where I'd be today because it was very therapeutic. So being on the bike, getting back on the bike three weeks after my surgery, you know, those milestones will forever be with me. And Again, it was it was therapy from the bike that got me in good shape to battle cancer, and it was certainly therapy on the bike that helped me get through it. Yeah, so let's get into your battle with cancer. So can you tell us a little bit about how that all started? Sure. It's interesting. I talk to a lot of people about cancer, and a lot of people want to hide from it. It's almost like something something you did wrong that uh, that you were afflicted with cancer, yet so many people throughout their lifetimes will, will find that bad diagnosis. You know, I was, I was having a little bit of trouble swallowing and said, you know, I've got health insurance, got very good health insurance. I might as well go get this checked out because I knew something just wasn't quite right. So I went and had an, an endoscopy to check it out and see what it was. Suffered a, pretty much my adult life from uh, what you call it, uh, GERD, if you will. So all my adult life, spicy foods, drinking alcohol late at night, you know, all led to that. And that's actually what they think caused the cancer. So on December 24th, I get a call Christmas Eve. Family's about ready to show up at my house. And I get a call from the doctor saying that he wants to see my wife and myself regarding the diagnosis. And of course, if you're getting called in on Christmas Eve, you know it's not good. Right. Um, so went in to see him. They diagnosed esophageal cancer, or they, I should say they, they said it was a tumor. And uh, they wanted me to start uh, treatment right away. So, I mean, it was probably about a week and a half later, I found myself at City of Hope starting my treatments of chemo and radiation. And um, it was something that uh, I set myself out to, to make sure that uh, as I went through the treatment, cancer never told me that I was affected. You know, cancer sneaks up on you and all of a sudden, you know, it's stage three, stage four before you know it. So I decided during my treatment, I was going to do the same thing to cancer. I wasn't going to let it know it, that we knew it was there. So I kept riding my bike. I kept doing ski patrol. I kept doing all the things that I was doing right up to and through chemo and radiation. I think that's probably the coolest part of the story is that I just did not let it affect my everyday life and just continued on. That's kind of the message I share with everybody is you just have to continue to do the things that make you feel normal as you go through it. And it makes the battle a whole lot easier. Yeah, I want to back up a little bit to your whenever you were in there on Christmas Eve, because I think a lot of times when people when something goes wrong with their health, it's very sudden, like in this case where oh, I'm not swallowing very well. And then you go and then suddenly it's this big thing. And I guess it's up to you to decide if this is a big deal or not, which it sounds like you decided, like, I'm not going to make this a big deal and let it alter my life. But how did you deal with the shock of hearing those words? 
that's a great question. And it's, I think anybody that's been affected or anybody that has family members affected, everybody can go back to that absolutely horrific sound of you have cancer. You know, I don't know if I was numb from what they told me or if it's just my nature, but the first thing out of my mouth when the doctor told me that is, okay, what's the plan? So what are we going to do? How are we going to do this? My wife was in a kind of a different mindset. I think she was in total shock. And I know a lot of people will reach out and say, why me? You know, I, I don't, I don't deserve this. What caused it? And it's, that's all rear view mirror thinking. And my idea was look through the windshield and figure out, okay, where are we going to take this next? And so that's why my treatment started less than two weeks later. I found the hospital I wanted to go to. I pressed the doctors who said, you know, we're going to start you in about eight weeks. And I said, no, you're not. I've got cancer in my body. And the sooner we get this out of here, the better. And I always felt positive. I always felt like, you know, I was going to beat it, though I would never say those words. Uh, it was maybe a little superstitious, but I just set out to do everything I could in my power to do the therapy, do the treatment and get through it. Why did the doctors want to wait eight weeks? And they wanted to run testing. They wanted to get at City of Hope. They work in teams of doctors. So they wanted to assemble the team. They wanted to take a look at everything. They wanted to fine tune the treatment plan. And I told them absolutely not. You know, it's, it's every day that it's in my body, it's growing. So we're going to start out right now and, and start doing the chemo and radiation to get rid of this. So, uh, and they agreed. They saw how aggressive I was going to be. I think any doctor likes that because that's what they have to do. So when they get a patient that wants to do the same thing with them, I think they're more apt to work with you on that. So that was the plan. And while this is going on, how did you stop yourself from letting the what ifs take over? Because I know that if it was me, it would be really hard to not think, well, what if this happens or what if that happens? And, and what if I don't get to do this? So how did you like calm yourself down? I think any life changing event like that is going to be just that. It's going to be life changing. There are things today that are different than they were before cancer. But, you know, we, we're all going to die. That's one thing we, we all know is coming. It's inevitable. We, we all have an expiration date. We're all going to die. So if that's the concern, you're probably cheating yourself out of some really good life by worrying about what the end is going to look like. And at the time I was 51. And so I said, you know, if this was the end, man, I had an incredible 51 years. Just, I probably stuffed more in 51 years than most people get out of their entire life. And so, you know, I've been blessed that way. And I was, you know, I had no regrets. So I just set out and said, I, I really don't care about the what ifs. The only thing I can uh, count on is, is doing what they asked me to do and doing it as best I can do it. And so that's, we set out, you know, what happens, you know, is up to the good Lord and, you know, the doctors that were working on me and I was willing to accept whatever the uh, end game was. Yeah. I think that you said that if you died tomorrow, you would feel fulfilled with the life that you've led. And I think that that's a really important point to make to it's number one, like if you're not living the life that you want to live right now, get started. Because if, if your life does end tomorrow, you want to have that feeling. <laughs> Absolutely. Like for me, that's been a way that I've always lived my life too. Like if I die tomorrow, it would suck, but I feel like I've done a lot. And I try and encourage other people to do the same thing. And I love hearing that you thought that whenever you thought, well, if this is the end, it's, it's been great. Well, you know, Sonia, I look at you and you're a great example of this. You know, the way you and Matt go after different adventures and, and what life means to you. And you don't get cheated. You go out there and you and you live different things. I've watched you do different sports, different events, and it's always with a smile on your face. It's never half-hearted. 
And everybody should live like that. You know, if you go through the day in the mundane, expect that that's what you're going to get. But if you go after every day vigorously and get something out of every day, that's why it's easy to walk away at 51 years old. Thankfully, 56 years, I'm still going, but I was prepared. And so I really didn't think about the alternatives. You know, what if and what if not? And that's what kept me positive. That's amazing. What would you actually, what advice would you give if somebody didn't feel that they had led the life that they wanted. Like I had a podcast guest on and he had some heart problems and he had this moment where he thought, well, I haven't even started living the life that I want to live. And then he survived and he got started. But like for those of us who haven't had a traumatic event, what do people need to do to get started if they're not living the life that they imagined? It's not life-threatening, obviously, but it's you're cheating yourself. You know, we only get one life, that's for certain. And so the idea is you find something you truly enjoy, whatever that is. You know, for some people, it's fishing. For other people, it's gardening. Those are two things that I could care less about. But for other people, those those are passionate pieces of their life. And I just say pursue those wholeheartedly. Pursue those with everything you have and enjoy the time that you have here on Earth. It's all limited. You know, we're all, somebody may, may live to 100. Somebody, my father died at 67 years old. I, I feel he got, you know, he got cheated out of years, but he didn't get cheated out of life. So he just got cheated out of time because that man lived a, uh, a very good life. And I'm sure he's smiling in heaven right now, knowing that uh, he got everything out of it he wanted. But I wish he was still here. So you just got to take what you're given and make the best out of it. Yeah, I love that. So I want to talk about your blog because you started a blog in association with this. And I remember reading it and you told me, I've never written a blog before. <laughs> and haven't written one since. Yeah, and I was actually trying to find it. I was trying to go back and find the archives, and I couldn't find it anywhere. But something that really I still remember to this day, and it's been years since I read it, was I started reading it, and I thought to myself, oh, my God, Jim has cancer. I'm like, no, 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 not Jim. And I kept thinking, ah, oh, I'm so sorry this happened to him. And in your blog post, it was like you were speaking to me. You said, don't you dare say I'm sorry. Because I'm not sorry. So can you talk Absolutely. a little bit about that? It's funny, Sonia, when you said that, you were saying, I felt like I'm, you know, I, I got to tell them I'm sorry. And while you were saying that, I kept thinking that to this day, when people tell me that they're afflicted with cancer, I will not say that. I will not say I'm sorry, because it's too late for that. You've already got cancer. There's nothing to be sorry about. But the, the real question is, how can I help? And people like you and many of my good friends, they were there. I look back at that whole battle and... Everybody wanted to say, I'm sorry. And I would say, don't do that. Don't do that to yourself. Because when you say, I'm sorry, it kind of brings you down too. And nobody needs to be sorry for me. What I needed was the moral support to help me realize that, you know, if I give it everything, you know, everybody's behind me. There's, there's a whole lot of prayer and a whole lot of uh, mojo that's working on this, uh, this treatment with me. And that really made me feel good. I mean, people that I hadn't talked to in 10, 15, 20 years came out of the woodwork to reach out and say how, you know, how much they wanted to be there for me. And that was the special part, you know, so I would encourage everybody listening. If, if somebody hits you with that bad news, save the I'm sorry, because it doesn't do any good. Rather do something good for them that's going to make them feel good that day. Because if somebody, if you had somebody every day in your life, and you go through treatment for cancer or alcoholism or whatever it is, that encouragement goes a lot longer, a lot further than I'm sorry. I think that's great advice because a lot of times when something bad happens to somebody we care about, we don't really know what to say because what can you say? So I think the first thing that we want to say is, is I'm sorry. So it's really helpful to hear you can say, what can I do to help or 
something to encourage them instead of just, I'm sorry, it's kind of just like treading water. Yeah, absolutely. Great point. So what did your doctor say to you whenever you said, okay, well, I'm going to be going through chemotherapy, radiation, but I'm still going to keep riding my bike and skiing. Did they look at you like you had five heads? They would shake their heads and just say, well, you know, we'll clear you to do it, but we think you're foolish for doing those things. You should be resting at home. And I said, you know what? Cancer is not resting, so why should I? And I just felt like the more normal my life stayed, the more positive I would stay in that life. So I remember I started chemo radiation on January 6th, right in the middle of ski season. And I did all my days on the mountain for ski patrol, still rode my bike. In fact, uh, we were just laughing the other day. I was on the same trail that I rode. The, so chemo and radiation is over. And I had to wait about an extra month for my surgery because of a, uh, an issue that doctors had with the surgical site. And it was something wrong right at the surgical site. They wanted it to heal. So they asked me to wait an additional 30 days, which was kind of good because surgery was originally scheduled for April Fool's Day. I'm not sure <laughs> you know, being Irish probably wasn't a good idea. So they pushed it to the end of April. And the day before my surgery, I went out with all my buddies and, and rode this trail. And there, it was, it, Southern California doesn't get a lot of rain. But we had a terrible rainstorm that day. And all my buddies still came out. They still rode the trail. We felt bad because we did some damage to the trail. I apologize to the trail keepers for that. But it was necessary to do it. And unfortunately, you know, I look back today and I say how magical that was to be going into surgery the next day for cancer and just had a killer ride on the trail. And that's, if you want to do something for somebody that's going through this, take them out and do something that they truly love. And my friends were there for me and they did that. And it was one of the best rides I've ever been on. And I'll, I'll never forget it. That's so cool. I think that you're kind of brushing over the, I'm just going to keep riding and skiing. Cause a lot of people are, they probably are thinking, well, weren't you tired? Didn't you feel sick? Like you think of people throwing up or just people that look weak whenever they're going through these treatments. So how did you adjust your expectations? And maybe I'm not sure if that's exactly what you did, but that's what I'm guessing is how did you adjust your expectations when you did go back out while you're going through these treatments and not maybe feeling a hundred percent? You're absolutely right. You know, the, the further you go into the chemo treatment and you go through, I went through five weeks of radiation at the end, you're the inside of your body is burning. So there's no question. You're absolutely right. That they weren't the same rides. They weren't the same, wasn't the same experience on the mountain skiing. But you take that all in consideration where you're at. So, you know, here I was fighting for my life. Do I really care if I'm riding at 15 miles an hour on my bike or if I'm riding 12 miles an hour? I didn't care at, in the least. In fact, I shot a commercial for City of Hope because they love this story where I actually rode my bike several times to my uh, radiation. And uh, it's about 13 miles each direction. 13 miles getting there was easy. After radiation, I will tell you the 13 miles took me about two and a half hours to get home. Wow. But, you know, kind of with you in the back of my head, I went home those two and a half hours with a smile on my face, just saying, you know what, how many people can go to radiation and ride their bicycle home? And I drew from that. I mean, I drew a lot of power from that. And it was really one of the things that helped me get through the chemo and radiation as well as I did. So I know a lot of people suffer and get sick. And I can't say that it's because of the mental attitude. But I'm absolutely certain the mental attitude is, is a big part of that. So stay positive and do the things that make you feel normal. Yeah, find the things where you draw it. Like you, you mentioned, you do a lot of personal power from that and maybe feeling in control. Yep, 
I just tell people when I counsel them, because I still talk to a lot of people about getting through esophageal cancer, which I had, and the whole idea is small victories. Try to have a small victory every day. For some people, it may be getting up off the couch and walk into the refrigerator to get something to drink because they feel so bad. I remember when I was hospitalized for that one week after surgery, they made me stay in the hospital to monitor me. And I made it a point every day. So every time I got out of the bed, I needed to do one more lap around the nurse's station with my IV bags hanging down. And to me, that was the small victory. One more lap, one more lap, one more lap. Pretty soon, the seventh day that I was there, it was almost all out of bed, almost all walking up and down the hallways. And that's, to me, those were the small victories that I kept adding up in my head that were going to help me get through this. And do you think that the tenacity that you had when you were going through this came from a bunch of other life experiences that you had leading up to that? You know, Sonia, it's true. I mean, it, it's you look at all the things you battle. You could say battle cancer. You can say battle alcoholism. You could battle an employer. You can battle a bad relationship. You could battle demons. You know, we have so much mental disease in our country. There's a lot of things that people are battling every single day, and you just get resilient to that. And the more you battle, the, the stronger you get. What, what's the saying? Whatever doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. But I go back to the whole fact that people were constantly calling me and texting me and emailing me every day with positive reinforcement. And it just made me keep doing those things because I knew a lot of people were watching how I did that. Think of the last person you know that died of something unexpected. And that's how they get remembered. It's not the life that they lived. It's people talk about the battle you had before you lost it. And I think about that. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go out in style. You know, people are going <laughs> to say, my God, did you see what that guy did to try to beat this? And, you know, that was my story. That was going to be the end of my story. It was going to be a great ending because I was going to go out with both guns blazing. And fortunately for me, uh, you know, I've got the second chance and I'm going to do everything I can with it to make an impact on other people's lives. And I think I'm doing that, but I certainly could do it better every day. I love that. I'm, I'm almost speechless. I'm, I have like, I was having like tears coming up hearing you say that because it's just so inspiring and amazing. Well, we all draw inspiration from certain things. And, you know, to me, you are one of those people. So find the people that inspire you and spend more time with them because that's where you can certainly draw it from. Thanks, Jim. That, that's really kind words. I have another question about this. And Whenever you're sick and you're dealing with something, do people treat you differently? Like I, you see in like on TV shows, people say, I don't want to be treated like a cancer patient. I want to be treated like a normal human being. Did you have that experience where people were treating you differently because of what you were going through? They do. I mean, I think it's just the sensitivity of the human psyche that, you know, if somebody's not doing well in something, you, you try to help and you try to keep that in the, in the back of your head. And I guess I just didn't. Um, maybe that's my lack of sensitivity is, you know, I just, I overlook that. I mean, people are just trying to be nice and they're, they're, they're trying to help you, you know, get through what you're going through. So mm-hmm. I don't mind if they, I, the thing that really gets to me is the people that don't want to speak about it. I'm working with somebody right now that I can't say who it is, but uh, used to play in the NFL and doesn't feel comfortable talking about it. And that's okay, but I don't understand why. I mean, it's, it's just like having a cold. It's a disease. And, you know, the more support you get, the easier it is to overcome the odds of what a lot of people face when they battle cancer. So in my book, I'd much rather have a, a big army of people supporting me than try to hide in the sand and pretend like it, it's not happening. I love that you're doing so much activism and, and trying to help people who are going through something similar from what you did. 
Can you the like purpose of my second chance? That is my purpose. So, so is that through City of Hope or is that kind of on your own? It's mostly through City Hope. Uh, my doctor is an amazing oncologist and amazing surgeon that it has a lot of responsibility for where I am at today. And I'm always help, happy to help out. But having that knowledge really drives me to talk to these people and help them, you know, what I experienced and how it went for me. Because there's life after cancer. There really is. But I get a lot of people that get phone calls from friends that say, would you talk to this person? They're having a tough time. I mean, I've talked to ovarian cancer patients of breast cancer patients. I mean, I didn't go through those types of cancers, obviously, but it's just the battle. It's how to stay positive and how to stay upbeat and what can you do to make yourself better and, you know, anything I can do to help. It just, again, like I said, it's it's the purpose of my second chance and I'm happy to do it. I love that. So awesome. So it's been a few years now and you've done some amazing things in those last four years. It's been four years, right? No, five years in two weeks. Yeah. All right. Two. So we can yeah. celebrate five years. You've done so much, like you've been helping so many people. And I think it's amazing that you said your second chance, you're using it to give back. And you also have been a ski patroller for quite some time. How many years have you been doing that? It's 10 now. So wow. 10 years uh, this season. And you had the opportunity to go to the Olympics, as you mentioned. I did. Yeah. In February, went to uh, South Korea went back to Seoul and then into uh, Pyeongchang, which is where they held the Winter Olympics and went with six other or five other patrollers, a total of six of us from the U.S. to help on the uh, alpine skiing sports, the slalom, giant slalom, et cetera, and uh, had a, an amazing time. You know, South Korea was great for those Koreans that are listening, uh, that their people are amazing, but it was really the the world-class athletes and the, the whole idea around the Olympics, there was no politicism, if that's even a word. There was no, no <laughs> politics whatsoever. And uh, just to watch world-class athletes support each other, even though they were trying to beat each other, man, if, if our world ran like that, this would be a great place to live. Was that your first time at an Olympic Games? It was, yeah. Wow, that's a really great way to experience it. You actually get to ride the lift up with competing athletes. <laughs> Absolutely. It was epic. No doubt about it. How did you get selected for that? We actually had uh, a couple of Korean nationals on our ski patrol that uh, solicited the uh, Olympic Committee from Korea and put us in a position where they needed some English-speaking patrollers over there. So we were selected out of a small pool of people that decided to go over and, and dedicate four weeks of their life to do uh, volunteer patrol over there. And um, it was, I mean, it, one of those uh, once-in-a-lifetime experiences. What was the most interesting thing that you saw? Because I imagine that, well, number one, going to Korea would be interesting in and of itself. But in the games, what was the most interesting thing that you saw that was your biggest takeaway? You know, I, I think it was really the camaraderie amongst the world-class athletes. We hung out with Russians. I gave a hug to an Iranian. You know, these are people we're supposed to hate, right? That's what we're told, that this is evil and they're against Americans. But, man, it was not the case there. North Koreans took some pictures with those guys. They were rock stars at the Olympics because everybody understands how, you know, suppressed they are by their government. So when they were there, they were like rock stars. And it was just, it was just awesome to see how the world came together through sport. Just really blessed and privileged to be a, have been part of that because it was, a, again, if we could run the world like that, we'd, be, we'd all be in much better shape. 
Yeah, I wish that there was a way to bring that more into the forefront so that people could see that, that we're all just people. And whatever label we have put on ourselves based on where we live or our gender or the color of our skin, like that's just a label. And that isn't who somebody is on the inside based on a stereotype. And it's really too bad that media, and here I am on my soapbox, but media and just the way that information is distributed, it, it creates so much hate. And I think that's one of the saddest things in our world right now. It really is. And so as you say that, I'm thinking to myself, the way we should make this all work is the next president should be a sports athlete because it was all brought together by sports. So I'm going to start the Sonia Looney for president. Or we have no. to go see Sonia want us for uh, No, 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 no. <laughs> that's a job I would definitely not want. <laughs> Uh, but you're going to run it by sport. It's all about competition. So. Well, competition does bring out interesting things in people. I mean, you see people at their best and at their worst, and you see how people act in those situations. And it's a great opportunity for people to learn about themselves. But speaking of competition, I don't think I've ever asked you if you've ever competed in mountain biking. I did. I raced twice. It's As you know, it's not... I'm a very competitive guy. I hate to lose at anything. But when it comes to mountain bikes, it's, I just have a different philosophy. I don't mind running somebody down on the trail. Sometimes that just gives me, makes me work that much harder on the bike. But especially because maybe it was because of my lungs, you know, being a lifetime asthmatic. Mm-hmm. Knew I never had the lungs for it, so maybe I just uh, I shied away from it. That could be. But I just enjoy my time on the mountain bike. And that's why, to me, it's so awesome to watch you. I know you're in such pain when you're out there at the very end of a race and you're still smiling. It's just, I just wonder how that happens. But when I ride my mountain bike, I smile because I'm not riding as hard as you are. And anyway, back to your question. I raced twice, podiumed once. I think I got third. Yeah. Uh, in my yeah. So it was pretty awesome. If you remember, you probably don't. But my second race, you told me how to warm up because I, I had a terrible start to my first race. The second race, when you were saying, you know, go f- as hard as you can go for, I think I forget what it was now, but 30 or 60 seconds before the race. And I'm saying, why would I do that? It sure worked. It got me started quick, and I finished that race. I think I was fourth in my group just off the podium, but uh, I won't forget the advice. (laughs) And you decided that if you do more events, it it might suck the fun out of mountain biking. No, it's just not. uh, It's never been appealing to me to to, uh, to race. It's just, Mm -hmm. to me, I love single track. I love going finding new trails. I love the solace of riding by myself sometimes, uh, getting out there just, sharing my thoughts with myself out in the middle of nowhere. And I use that mountain biking more to explore stuff and find different trails. New trails to me are what mountain biking is all about. Well, you're going to have to come up here and visit in BC. I got lots of new trails to show you. <laughs> Absolutely. It's still on my list. Yeah, it's really interesting in mountain biking, especially as a racer, because the fun does get sucked. I'll be the first to admit that it does suck the fun out of out of riding sometimes when you're racing all the time and you're always worried about how you're going to feel and it can suck the fun out. And I think that's why you see a lot of times when people retire, they just like quit the sport altogether. And you don't see it as much in mountain biking. I think you see it a lot more in road cycling, but people just quit altogether because they had so much structure and so much pressure from internal and external expectations that it just became not fun anymore. And I think the key to a long, whether you want to call it a career or just a long stint in sports, whether you're competing or not, is to make sure that it's still fun. And it's easy to suck the fun out, too, even if you're not competing because of expectations that you put on yourself. And I think that it's so important to keep that love alive of 
I love finding new trails. I love being by myself and getting to know myself better when I'm out in the mountains. And those are really great points to make. Yeah, that's where I find my fun in mountain biking. So I have one last question for you, Jim, and it's it's on the topic of retirement. And I wish that my husband, Matt, was here. I'm actually going to record an entire podcast with him because he's always second fiddle and I want him to be first fiddle for a show. But we always talk about the concept of retirement and what we think about it and kind of how we what we talk about is kind of what you're doing. So can you talk about retiring and then unretiring? <laughs> sure. I don't recommend it to anybody. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> The whole premise, you know, a lot of people thought that that when I, I I had long ago targeted the age of 50 as retirement. So my wife and I, not having any kids, we put a lot of money away, planned our retirement and planned it young. So we planned to, to retire at 50 and it was a goal of mine to do that so that we can enjoy life and do other things. We have we have big hearts for, for charity. So both of us like to give back and and do the things that we can do for our church, for our community, et cetera, et cetera. And, and we do all those things. We participate at a very high level in all those things because we just feel that that's what our, our makeup is. So the idea was to retire and then go do those things. So, you know, a lot of people think retirement is, you know, going fishing or, you know, finding a good, a good book and just sitting down every day to read. And it, that's not me. I mean, I don't have those. I don't have that gear. So the idea was to retire and go out and give back to the city that we live in, our church, et cetera. And so I started to do that. So I was spending about 60 hours a week. I, I run our uh, the program in our city called uh, CERT, which is through FEMA. Uh, we do community emergency response. And so I was running that, teaching a lot of the classes in, in the CERT program. Uh, obviously, you mentioned ski patrol already. So I was the volunteer patrol director for the last seven years did a lot of things with my church on the board of my church. And so they were busy days. I mean, it was giving back, but it was so fulfilling. I mean, it was kind of nice not having to worry about getting a check because then I don't have to worry about how much I do. And it's all driven by what I want to do, what my desire is. So that part was exciting. And then my wife decided after being encouraged for about five years while I was working, I was trying to get her to go out and do her own thing in uh, senior healthcare, which is her, her uh, expertise. And so she decided after I retired, she was going to go out on her own and start her own uh, her own business in that field. So it kind of pushed me back into the workplace to give her some cover and, and allow her to not have to build her, her business for, for money, but rather build it the way she wanted to, to help seniors. Mm-hmm. So I came back and got a job in an industry that I knew absolutely nothing about. And I mentioned to you earlier in the podcast about stepping forward and saying, you know, give me nine days. And if I don't prove to you, I'm the guy that you should have hired. Uh, then we both shake hands, walk away with a smile on our face. And, and I did that here. I'm now in, in the development business on landscape construction. And I do uh, all the client development with um, commercial builders and residential developers to sit down and, and talk about what our company can do for them. And, you know, it's a different language. It's completely different. I found myself being back in the, a student role instead of being the teacher. found myself learning everything. But it's been outstanding, very rewarding. I don't plan to do it for a long, long time because I do want to get back to giving back to my community. But for now, it's been a lot of fun. And I've learned, I'm have learned i learning a lot of stuff. And hopefully I'm changing this company to be a better one than when I got here. I love that. I think it takes a really humble person to, after having a career at really high levels in different companies, to come back and say, I'm going to become the student again 
I think it's hard for a lot of people to do that because it, it is humbling. And I also think it's really important, though, because for all the people that you're teaching, all the people you're talking to, if you can have empathy as what it's like to be kind of a beginner again, or even just somebody who's just trying to soak up and learn as much as they can, I think it makes you a better teacher. That great points to all of them. I say that uh, a lot of people struggle as they get older because they the mind shuts down, they stop, they stop learning, they stop doing things. It's, it's more like getting up every day, grabbing a cup of coffee, watching TV for 10 hours, and then go to bed and, and repeat. And this is keeping my mind going. It's, it is humbling. And I, I probably needed that. I probably need to be humble. I think cancer was a humbling experience. And, and this further humbles me. You know, when I, I, I used to sign, you know, $10,000 expense reports, and I just got busted the other day for a $15 receipt. And it's, <laughs> I walked down the hall smiling, just thinking, wow, where did I, where did I go? You know, but uh, yeah, it's, we're, we're all humans. And, you know, this is going to help me later in life, not to be that grouchy old guy, because it is resetting, you know, how I look at things. And it's simplified a lot of the ways that I look at, at business. So it's good. It's a good imagine, experience. Imagining you as being grouchy, I actually started laughing because I just can't imagine it. It's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't call my wife on that. One. You'd be like <laughs> smiling while you're grouchy. <laughs> uh, that could be. That could be. I highly encourage you and Matt to uh, to get to retirement as soon as possible because uh, you guys are are very adventurous and there's a lot going on out there that you would uh, you guys would just suck up. Well, kind of the joke is like, well, it's not really a joke, but I kind of am retired. I'm doing everything that I want to do. Like, if someone gave me millions of dollars tomorrow and said you have all the money you need for the rest of your life, what would you do? It's exactly what I'm doing. So I don't want to retire. <laughs> right there, right there is life's lesson. You just said. <laughs> And that is find something that you truly, truly enjoy doing and go do it. And there's, you know, for those people that say I can't make any money doing that, there's always a way to make money doing what you're passionate about. You just got to find the right avenue. Totally. Well, Jim, it was awesome to get to have you on the podcast because I get to selfishly have you all to myself in our conversations, but now I get to share you with the world. And I know that you're going to really make an impact on a lot of people's lives who are listening to this. I hope so, Sonia, because you've been that kind of impact to me and certainly appreciate everything you did to help me get through my last five years of this battle. But, um, you know, what we should all hope we do is if it's just one person, let's hope we inspire somebody today. And how can people get in touch with you? I'm sure that people will have comments or maybe they're going through something and they'd like to talk to you. Oh, absolutely. I won't do cell phone, but I, uh, <laughs> uh, email is a great place to start. Uh, we will have live conversation if if you want to, but uh, just hit my email, which is J Murphy, spelled M U R P H Y, the number 1414 at Mac.com. So J Murphy 14 at Mac.com. Feel free to reach out if I can help you in any way, especially those folks that are going through their own cancer fight. Happy to do so. I hope I get a lot of emails because I'd love to help in any way I can. Don't worry. Thanks, Jim. It was such a treat to get to talk to you. Sonia, I, I really enjoyed this. Thanks so much. And it's, uh, it's been an absolute blast spending the last hour with you. Cool. Jim meant it whenever he said that you could reach out to him. So if you are battling cancer or maybe you have a loved one who is and they could find some resolve talking to Jim, I highly recommend that you reach out to him. 
That's crazy that this was episode 50. We are two episodes away from the one year mark. It's hard to believe that it's gone by that quickly, but that's a lot of episodes. That's a lot of amazing people who have contributed to this show and I definitely couldn't do it without them. And I also couldn't do it without you. So thank you so much, you guys, for being a part of this journey. It really, really means a lot to me. And it brings a lot of purpose to my life to be able to bring such great information and to help make a difference in the world. The Plant Powered Tribe is growing fast. It's really cool to see my Facebook group taking off and to have it be a community where everyone is contributing. And it's been neat. I've actually learned a lot of different things on there as well. And I'm trying to figure out ways to make it even better. So if you have some feedback for me or if you have even feedback for the show, please feel free to send me an email. I read every single message. It's easy to contact me. You can do it through social media. You can do it on my website. I would love to hear from you. And Moxie and Grit, my lifestyle brand, is going. It is chugging along. There are multiple designs on the website now, so make sure you check out moxieandgrit.com, and that's spelled M-O-X-Y and grit.com. I love seeing pictures of people rocking the socks, and we've been trying to share all of them on social media. We're also trying to grow our Instagram account, which is at moxieandgrit. So if you want to follow us on Instagram, that also would be greatly appreciated. My next big adventure is right around the corner and I'm excited to get back into being more of a racer again. It's been a really challenging start to the year. There's been ups, there's been downs, but I'm just excited to go. So I'm going to Japan and Japan has been on my list of, it's at the top of my list of places that I want to visit. And my really good friend, Yuki Ikeda, we used to be teammates for a long time and we've actually raced together as teammates in South Africa and he lives in Japan. He used to live in Colorado, but now he lives in Japan and he has been trying to get me to come out and visit for a while. So I'm going to do this race called the Otaki and it's 100K and it's the biggest race in Japan. It's a one day race and I, I'm just so excited to experience a completely different culture. And that's one of the reasons I love adventure is I love the unknown. I love seeing something different and it's definitely gonna be the unknown. One of my friends, Corey Wallace, has done the race and he said he got chased by baboons. So that is definitely an experience I haven't had before and I hope I have a little bit of extra gas in the tank should that happen. Make sure you follow along on social media because I definitely am posting stories and pictures and all kinds of stuff from my travels. And I occasionally send out a free newsletter. So if you wanna to go to my website, sonyalooney.com, there is a little prompt that pops up and it gives you the option to sign up. I don't send out a lot of emails, so you don't have to worry about your inbox getting spammed. That's always my biggest reservation about signing up for a new email list is I don't like getting tons of emails. So I send out an email maybe once a month just with some updates for you guys. And if you want more newsletters than just once a month, I'm also happy to do that, but I just don't wanna spam and crowd your inbox. That is it for this week's show. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And thank you again for listening. Wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week.